whatever God's going to do. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Saeed, his wife's up in Boise. They've been having some prayer vigils for him. So, I don't know if you if he's been on Facebook at all. He's all over Facebook too. So, we want to make sure we're lifting him up. It's uh, it's real. <laughs> so, this is somebody that actually hits kind of close to home. So, please remember him. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter nine, and we're going to take a look at. Uh, what the Lord has for us. We've been talking the last several weeks about resisting the Holy Spirit, responding to the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about uh, the problem, the issue with men, mankind, is uh, he is in need of a change of nature. And there is only one person who changes the nature of a man. And as we've been looking, we, we were introduced to a guy named Stephen. And the interesting thing about Stephen is he's not one of the apostles. He's, he's not necessarily one of the initial leaders of the church. He was a guy who made a choice, who said, you know what, I'm going to be a part of a solution. I'm gonna, I want to be a part of serving. And so he came up just to serve tables, to make sure widows had their daily distribution of food. But God continued to use him. God continued to use him to the point where, in a lot of ways, like Saeed, he finds himself in a position where he's got to give witness to what Christ has done in his life, and the men he's talking to have the power or authority to take his life. So he bears witness. He shares, and what he shares is always the struggle in men The struggle in women is to resist the Holy Spirit. Our natural tendencies, if you lean into your natural tendency, you will not naturally do the things that God wants you to do. It won't come natural. We resist the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen laid that out so eloquently to the Sanhedrin, and they took his life. So in chapter 7, we see the man laying out the concept of the resistance of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, we see the concept of a man responding to the Holy Spirit. Philip responds to the Holy Spirit, goes to Samaria where nobody else wants to go. You remember who Philip was? He's not an apostle either. Philip is just a guy who was serving tables, making sure widows had their daily distribution of food. And God continued to use him. And one day God put something on his heart. Crazy idea. Go to Samaria. So he did. He went to Samaria. And a revival broke out. Lives radically changed. Spirit of God moving in incredible ways. And in the midst of that, the Lord spoke to his heart again. He sent an angel to him. And the angel said, go on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza down into the desert. And Philip responded to the Holy Spirit. He responded and he went at exactly the right moment that enabled him to come to a collision course with an Ethiopian eunuch at exactly the right time when he had exactly the right question as he's looking at Isaiah chapter 53 about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah. And here comes Philip, able, ready to to be there, to be the solution for this man's question. And so he lays out for the man. And he shares about Jesus with him. And that man, the Ethiopian eunuch, responds to the Holy Spirit. His life is forever changed. Forever. We face those decisions in our lives every day. Are you going to respond... Or will you resist? Maybe occasionally we look at somebody and we think, now that person's a hard case. There's no way that guy's ever going to get saved. Well, that's chapter 9. The guy who was never going to get saved comes face to face with an opportunity to have the light of God dawn in his life. To come face to face with his sin and to make a decision to make a decision that says, I 
am going to surrender me so that I can have all of you. That's what God is looking for. The decision to make that choice. So I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 9 and we'll read together the first 19 verses. Oops. You know, when I used to drink monsters, it was easy to have just one can. Now I'm drinking water and they're smaller. So. Oh, Lord have mercy. Acts chapter 9 begins Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. And asked the letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. And neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Arise and go down the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For, behold, he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias answered, Lord, I heard a lot about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Go. He is a chosen vessel of mine. He will bear my name before the Gentiles and kings And the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the concepts laid out for us in this conversion. Lord, Father, our desire, Father God, is to see you move, to pour out your spirit upon your people. God, to equip us to do what you've called us to. And so many of those keys are here available for us to see in the life of a man named Saul. God, I pray you would give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Father, a heart willing to receive your truth. And may it forever change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture tells us that Saul, still breathing threats, he was, that word for breathing is like snorting like a war horse. He wants to get him. He's after him. He wants to wipe out all concept of this faith, this, this spot, if you will, on Judaism. How could they take the truth of what we know in the Scriptures and distort it in this way? How can they put their faith and trust in a man who is dead? There's no way the Messiah can be a dead Messiah. It's impossible. And so, breathing threats and murders. 
he went after him. We want to get a little fuller picture of the attitude behind Saul, then we can look at Saul's own words. As, as we read in the book of Acts, if you just turn to your right to, to chapter 22, in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, he tells us, he says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering in the prison both men and women. We don't know how long Paul was busy doing this. But man, he was after the church. He was after persecution that, that so many people have to deal with was, was real and is real still in our world today. It wasn't that long ago, just, just thinking about Saeed. I've, I've talked to him a number of times on Facebook before he went. And his prayer before he went was, man, I, I may be walking into the lion's den, but I got to go. I got to go. And he's there now to fulfill what God has for him to do. And we need to be lifting him up and a part of that process. But just like Saul wanted to destroy the church, don't think that those the judge he faces in Iran is the toughest, most... He's the, he's the guy to give him the noose. If anybody's going to do it, he's the guy. That's what he faces. And that's who Saul was, man. He was that guy. I'm going to destroy the church. You slide down to chapter, uh, in chapter 22 to verse 19. Says, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He was a part, and he didn't just stand and hold cloaks, he cast his vote against him. He was a part of the beatings, he was a part of the persecution when the Bible says, and at that time, a harsh persecution arose against the church. That was Saul. I wonder how many of the apostles, I wonder how many of the seven men full of the Holy Spirit that were chosen to give the daily distribution of food to the widows were praying that God would change Saul. When I think about the nature of man, and I don't want to put any words into the mouths of the apostles, maybe they were. But I think the tendency of man is to think, that guy, Lord, take him out. Pray that a big rock would fall off one of the cliffs he was riding next to and hit him on the head and get him out of here. Remove the persecution. Get rid of it, Lord. I don't know. Maybe that was their heart. Maybe they were praying. Maybe they were praying that God would do a work in his life. I hope. I hope. And just like them, each of us have a, an opportunity for the Saul's in our life. That person you know that you're pretty sure is never going to get straight, never going to get their life together, never going to turn around, never going to change, it's always going to be this way, it's never going to get any better. You have an opportunity to utilize the primary weapon that God gives us. And that is prayer. To pray. To pray. We long to see the Spirit of God move in our day. If we're honest, we long to see the hand of God heal. We long to see the Spirit of God deliver. We long to see God move in all these ways. And the funny thing is, scripturally, it's all connected to when God's people pray. To when they pray. Problem is we, well, we give up too soon. We quit. 
Keith Green said it, I think echoing words from Leonard Ravenhill, he said, My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, and my prayers are cold. But I know how I ought to be. Alive to you and dead to me. We struggle with the idea of the power behind our prayers. And we'll see the power of those prayers uh, working in just a moment. We struggle with the concept of the, the power of prayer. But God's been dealing with my heart on a lot of things lately. And He's really been focusing on uh, a couple of specific things. One of those being selfishness. A lot of people say, well, I prayed, I tried praying and nothing happened. Do you know that there is a verse in the Bible that tells us why that happens? It's in the book of James. It says if we, we pray amiss, seeking to spend it on ourselves, our prayers are unanswered. They just bounce back off the ceiling. We're trying to send them to the Lord. Sometimes we're trying to tell God what's going on, but He, he already knows, in, in case we didn't understand that. And sometimes we're, we're asking God to do stuff for us. Lord, deliver me. Lord, give me strength. Lord, 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 I become the center of my prayer. And that's sin. God is supposed to be the center of my prayer. Him. His glory. His majesty. We think it's us that are offended or we who are hurt. Maybe we even think in Saeed's case, it's his, it's his wife and his family, his young children that are suffering. But listen, the scripture tells us that it is God alone. We can't even fathom the way He feels. It's His honor that has been sullied. It's His Son who has been ignored. It's His laws that have been broken. It's His name that has been profaned. It's His book that is forgotten. And it's His house that has become a circus. It's Him. God alone. The middle. The center of all the things that we do. Maybe they were praying for Saul. He sure was a guy that was way out there on the wing. Boy, whether or not he'd ever get saved. He, he did more damage to the church than anybody else had ever done in the history of the church. He's the first guy. He's the worst guy. He was going after him in every way. The Bible tells that he received letters from the high priest, probably Caiaphas. These letters uh, that give him introduction into the synagogues in Damascus. In Damascus, there's a huge Jewish population. Where did the church gather in those days? They didn't have a building. The Gentiles haven't been saved yet. Where did the church gather? They gathered in the synagogue. In Damascus, there were 30 to 40 synagogues. So he's got letters introducing him to the leader of the synagogue saying, this guy has the authority of the high priest, just as if the high priest was speaking to you. And if he arrests somebody, you help him. Because that's where the church was. Can you imagine such a thing? The church, meeting in church, in the synagogue, explaining to those who are reading the Old Testament scriptures that it is these that speak of Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. And Saul is going to stamp it out. He hates it so much, everything he can do is about wiping out the church. So as he's on his way, the road that would lead from where he was to Damascus, it passes by another city. Any idea what it was? Samaria. Oh, something been happening in Samaria lately, you know? Philip went there, you remember? Revival blew up, the... The people start getting saved. So Saul, everywhere he goes, every step he takes, every corner he tur turns, there's another guy telling him about Jesus. And if they told Saul about Jesus, he snatched him up, arrest him, throw him in prison, beat him, whatever he could do. But when he went by Samaria and he found out that the Samaritans were getting saved, I'm sure he thought, well, good, that's okay for them. 
I don't really care about the Samaritans anyway. That's why he didn't go there. Bunch of half-breed, no counts. I'm headed to Damascus and save the Jews in Damascus. And so he continues on his journey. He's heading that way. The scripture tells us, as we look at verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. That's exactly how God breaks into our life. Well, not always with a light externally, but the word before that. Suddenly. Bam. If most of us go back into our God story and we think about how we came to know God and how we experienced God, there we were going along in life like everything was just great and then all of a sudden, bam, something happened. Something shook the foundation. Something rattled our cage. We look at the scripture and we think, man, Saul, how did he get so lucky that God would come out of heaven and talk to him and bring him to, to faith by, I wish God would do that with my sister or my brother or whoever. Listen, that's how God saves everyone. No one comes to the Father except he is drawn by the Spirit. Everybody has a Saul experience. The difference is, God let everyone else see what was happening in Saul. But it happens in every one of us. If you come to know Jesus Christ, you have this experience. The light comes on. Doesn't it? And all of a sudden, the, the word comes to life. Things that you never quite understood begin to, to, to come into place. You have an understanding that you didn't have before. Well, that's what happened. Suddenly, God broke through. God showed up. God shined a light into, into Saul. Brings him to the ground. Scripture tells us that that's exactly what took place. Of a sudden, Acts 22, verse 6. Now it happened as they journeyed and came near Damascus at noon. So it's the middle of the day. It's not midnight and a flashlight came on him. The middle of the day at noontime, near Damascus, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. This light is Jesus Christ. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. 1 Corinthians 15, and last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. We'll see in Ananias in a moment. He's going to tell him, you saw Jesus Christ. He revealed himself to you. That's why he's an apostle. Because he sees the resurrected Christ. You see, that's a, that's a, a, a part. That's what you have to have done in order to be an apostle. And I want to bring your, your eyes to that phrase. He said, then last of all, he was seen by me. Do you catch that? And last of all... He was seen by me. God revealing himself to Saul, the man who would become a fire in the church. The one who's trying to obliterate the church is going to utterly see his nature completely change. Listen, look at your life. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, did your nature radically change? Because so often what happens is we have a, a, an intellectual concept with the Lord and all of a sudden we come to a, a surrender of the intellect and we say Lord uh, you know what I, I've tried everything else I'm going to try you God I put my faith and trust in you and and we look at our life and nothing changes because we have not experienced the power of God being poured out in our life that comes on every single person who has a life surrendered to Jesus Christ the church is longing to see and feel that power today. If we're honest, every one of us wants to feel and to see the power of God moving through us. And we wonder, what is it that hinders? What stops your spirit from empowering and moving as it did then? Because the words that Jesus spoke at that time still apply to us today. The works that you've seen me do in greater, you also shall do. But we intellectualize it. We take the hype out. We say the words. Suddenly God interrupted his life. The second thing you see happen to Saul is he is indicted. He's indicted. You know that's when a, a lawyer comes up to you and tells you, I have enough evidence of your guilt to put you away. 
That's an indictment. That doesn't put you in jail. You still got to go through the court process. But it means you're, we got enough to prove your guilt. And Jesus tells it to him in one simple phrase. Did you hear it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I'm sure Saul's whole world is a little crazy right now. It's a little crazy because, man, he's been, he's been out wiping out all these people, put them in, in jail, taking them away. He's been doing all this stuff that he could do. And now all of a sudden, a light from heaven and a voice saying, why are you persecuting? He's a little freaked out. He's a little freaked out. You can imagine, right? So the first thing he says is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That, that word for Lord is the same word he's going to use later on, but it has a totally different meaning when he uses it later on. When he uses it here, he's, he's speaking with respect to the voice that is coming out of heaven, which I think we would all do, right, if a voice came out of heaven? So he says, Who are you, Lord? And he gives the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Listen, I don't know what's going to happen with Saeed and I will continue to pray for him but if they take his life if they draw his blood Jesus bleeds not just Saeed and he belongs to Jesus every time someone touches a child of God. They are persecuting God himself. Now back it up. Every time you have a harsh word toward a brother or sister. When the body of Christ fights among itself. Who bleeds? Jesus. So Jesus identifies himself. As, I, Jesus. At this point, everything's moot, right? I know you're God. I know you're the Messiah. I know all of these things. I thought my whole life I've been spending doing what, what I thought God was calling me to do. I thought this was all so important. And he's faced with a decision. He feels the voice of God. He, he hears the voice of God. Now nobody else there, everybody else there hears the sound, but no distinct voice. Everybody else sees a light, but they don't see the same things that he sees. Because a man's... When God steps into a man's life and changes his nature, it's a very personal event. It's between you and God. And so he's there and God is breathing into him. And he says to him, the next phrase that he says to him in scripture, as we look at all the accounts in Acts chapter 22, in Acts chapter 26, we look at all those accounts and how they all come together for what's going on in his life. He's faced with a decision. In Acts 26, 14 and 15, it says, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now what are you going to do with that? Respond. Or resist? Well, of course he responds. I mean, crying out. He's got this incredible experience going on. Yeah, that always works, right? Because there was this group, this little group, maybe you heard of them. They came out of Exodus called the Children of Israel. And really there in the first couple of days, they saw some pretty incredible things. Never mind the ten plagues. But then they, they came between a rock and a hard place. Right before the Red Sea, with the enemy uh, pharaohs and his army coming down behind him like a crazy army, going to wipe them all out. They got nowhere to go. The Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand and see my salvation. Suddenly the pillar of fire moves behind them. And stops the army from being able to come upon them. And the Red Sea parts i'd say that's a pretty incredible thing isn't it is that something you guys seen that every day i don't know i don't see it every day 
For the next year they wandered through the wilderness with a pillar of fire leading them by day and a cloud leading them by night and manna falling out of the sky like rain. It looked just like snow, only it's not cold. Wow. You gather it up and you eat it. Supplied all their needs. Took them to Mount Sinai where the Spirit of God came upon the mountain. The mountain catches on fire. Thunder, lightning, cloud, smoke, and the voice of God speaks the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's pretty amazing stuff. The people, they look over at Moses and they say, Moses, this experience with God is kind of freaking us out. So you go talk to him. Now you tell me how long that experience lasts. Moses goes to the top of the mountain and, and talks with God. He comes back after 40 days. You remember what they're doing? They're dancing around a golden calf. Now, unless you believe the story that Aaron tells, that they took the gold and put it in the fire, and bloop, a golden calf came out, it took them a while to make that golden calf, didn't it? I, I mean, some things take a while. It takes a while to build, to do stuff. So the people, their faith was rock solid because of the light they saw, right? Because of the voice from heaven that they heard. Listen, if the light of God doesn't dawn in your heart, it's just going to fall to the ground on deaf ears. If you won't believe, this is what Jesus said, if you won't believe what the Word of God teaches, neither will you believe if a man rise from the dead in front of you and tells you, If we won't believe. Unbelief. Ah, that's a big problem. Saul, faced with his guilt, faced with his sin, faced with the voice of God, the voice of God coming upon him, it says in verse 6, So he trembled, astonished, and now everything changes, and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, the first time when he said, Lord, he didn't know who he was talking to. The second time when he says, Lord, he is saying to him, as far as I'm concerned, I submit to you. You are my Lord. And you know how I know it? By the rest of the sentence. What do you want me to do? What is it that you want to do? God, where should I go? What do I do? My whole life up to this point, I thought I knew everything. I thought I understood the truth. I thought I understood all that thing. And, and, and folks, there are people here today, right now, who think, I know it all. I've heard it all. I understand it all. I got it all in me. I've heard it. I've, I've, I've said the prayers. I've done the stuff. I get it. I get it. I get it. But if you're still struggling with the, with the change of a nature within you, you still haven't seen that change in the power of God released inside of your life, I'd say, take another look. Take another look. Have I surrendered? Is He my Lord? Do I want to do what God wants me to do? Or am I living for self? Then I would say, self is squarely on the throne in your life, not him. And I'm not sure that's conversion. I'm not sure anything has changed. A man's life changes when he comes face to face with his Savior. Saul's irrevocably different. Radically. Life turned upside down. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you? How can I be a part of what's going on? So the Lord tells him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. I would imagine. They, they heard a voice. The scripture tells us they heard a voice, but later on it tells us they didn't, they didn't hear anything. They didn't understand what was going on. So hearing a voice, but seeing no one, and Saul arose from the ground, and, and when his eyes were opened. Oh, that reminds me. You know, you hear all these people say, you know, if I could only stand before God and ask him some questions, I have some questions for God. 
Well, let me tell you how that works out. It works out the same every single time you see it in Scripture. It works out like this. You see God, you fall on your face, you close your eyes, you cry, you, you, you say you're sorry, you, you promise anything you can do because you are in the sight of perfect holiness. And you discover I'm standing before the only one who has a right to judge. And you're just like that woman caught in the act of adultery when Jesus is standing there that they brought to her who knows her absolute guilt. And looking into the eyes of Jesus knows he has a right to judge me. And hearing him say, Neither do I judge you. Go, sin no more. Paul has to open his eyes because he's had them closed so tight. He wasn't staring into that light, man. He knew when that light put him on the ground. He was on his knees, on his face, calling out to the Lord. Calling out to him, having this conversation with him, asking him, what do you want me to do? Where should I go? And then when he stands up and opens his eyes, he can't see. Well, he never really was able to see anyway. You know how much time we spend going around thinking we see? Thinking we understand the things we're looking at? Thinking we understand the situations? I mean, even, even something as horrible as Saeed's. I, I don't even know. I, I don't know what God's doing, how God's working, what effect is happening in Iran as a result of this, what, whose people's lives are being radically changed. I have no way. I, I don't know. I don't know. Unless God gives me eyes to see, we don't have answers to all life's questions. We don't need answers to all life's questions. What we need is a relationship with the one who can guide us safely through. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he does in a life submitted and committed to him. The scripture says, So Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight. Neither did he eat or drink. Saul's purpose now is in God's hands. Is that where your purpose is? Saul's purpose is in God's hands. He's there. He's not going to go anywhere. He's waiting until God directs him, until God moves him. Who is it that gets you up in the morning? Your job? The stuff you got to do? Who is it that motivates you in your day? Who's your focus? Who is the one who, who, for whom you live your life? Because if we're honest, for most of us, we're selfish creatures. Don't you know that's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? It's hard for us to take self off the throne. Now, the most important person in my life is me. Who makes all your decisions? I do. Who's going to decide where you're going to go, what you're going to do, when you're going to eat, when you're going to sleep, what your purpose is going to be tomorrow, what time you're going to get up, if you're going to read your Bible or not, whether or not you're going to go talk to somebody, whether or not you're going to call somebody back. Who decides all that in your life? I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it than that. I think Saul has placed his hand, his life in God's hands. All of it. Where I'm going to work. What I'm going to do. Who I'm going to serve. Where I'm going to teach. What I'm going to do next. Well, most of us have five-year plans, ten-year plans. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I just am curious how much God was involved in them. Who's on the throne? Saul has surrendered. Saul is blind. Saul can't see. Listen, Leonard Ravenhill says this of some of us. Yearly we use mountains of paper and rivers of ink, reprinting dead men's brains. While the living Holy Ghost is seeking for men to trample underfoot their own learning, deflate their inflated ego, and confess that with all their seeing they are blind. Such men at the price of brokenness 
strong crying and tears. Seek that they may be anointed with divine eye salve, bought at the price of honest acknowledgement of the poverty of their soul. We, we think we have answers. We know how things are going to fit and we know how things are going to go. But you know what God's really looking for is men and women who are, wi- are willing to receive the anointing of God and be led by Him. That's, that's where Saul's at, man. He's there. He's there. Things are radically different in his life. As far as I'm concerned, Saul's saved. That moment he said, the second Lord... When he called out, Lord, what do you want me to do? As far as I'm concerned, that's a moment of salvation. Now, people argue with me. I don't argue, so knock yourself out. But the, the, I, I see it right then. Because his whole demeanor radically changes. Doesn't it? He walks in the city. He goes where God tells him to go. He goes to do what God's telling him to do. And then he enters into a time of prayer and fasting. Didn't you see that? It says right there at the end of verse 9. Three days without sight, he neither neither ate nor drank. Oh yeah, Jackie, that, that's fasting. Maybe he wasn't eating because he had a headache. I don't, maybe. Maybe. I think he's praying and fasting. You know why? Because the scripture says, Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias! He said, Lord, here I am. So the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas For one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, what's it say? He is praying. His life is radically different. You see, he had a struggle of unbelief. You remember he had a struggle of unbelief? The struggle of unbelief was the ability to to believe that a Messiah who died could really be the answer, could really be God in the flesh. I mean, could that even be possibly true? I, I can't imagine such a thing. So he struggled with unbelief. He comes and he meets the resurrected Christ. He has faith, but he still struggles. He still does any of us that we don't struggle? So he's in this room and he's thinking, my whole life is backwards. I thought I saw, I thought I knew, but I don't know anything. And now I'm in this room and I'm not eating and I'm not drinking. Why? I'm not eating and not drinking because it's a good time for me to declare a fast. So I declared a fast and we just are going to fast. Listen, here's the best fast on the face of the earth. He was going after God so hard, seeking the Lord so hard, laying there in a room where he couldn't see and didn't know what to do next, that he didn't eat. And he didn't drink. And he prayed for three days. And when he fell asleep, when he woke up, he started praying again. I remember I used to think, I don't think I could pray for an hour. Hour, that's a long time to pray. I mean, I, there's only so many things I can pray for. Open up the bulletin, pray for everything in the bulletin, open up the church directory and pray for every person in the church, and I, I, I could burn an hour. And then I discovered, you know, when I start focusing not on me, but I start focusing on the Lord and who He is and what He's done, I can praise Him for an hour. I haven't even worked my way to a request yet experiencing the true and living God in a life of prayer. Man, he go, he's, come, he's calling on God's name. God, forgive me for the life I've lived. God, forgive me for the choices I've made. That's radical change. Is that the way our prayers are? Are we moved with passion? Because the Bible says in the book of James that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That means a, a prayer prayed effectively. Our focus is in the right place. What's an effective prayer? A prayer focused on the Lord. A prayer focused on God. Not a prayer centered on me and how everything affects me, but a prayer focused on the Lord and how things affect the Lord and how the Lord is seen and to desire to see the power of God moving in people's lives. The effective, fervent prayer. That word fervent is passion, man, to have Passion in your prayer. It's the last time you were so moved by passion that as you prayed, you started to cry. You couldn't you didn't even know why. You just start bawling. You can't even start to make the words come out of your mouth. You, you just cry. 
You're so moved by passion for God and a desire to see God move and work in someone's life or in some direction that you just weep. The last time you saw a lost person walking down the road, someone you thought was lost, and you looked at him and you just cry, your heart breaks for the fact that unless someone reaches out and touches them with the truth of the gospel, they'll spend eternity in hell. Because that, that's the kind of prayer Paul's praying. Man, he's, his life is upside down. You know, it never turns back around for him, right? He's like that committed, right? 13 books of the New Testament. He's moving in power and, and living a life of prayer. I mean, isn't it Paul who tells us to pray without ceasing? Isn't it Paul who tells us pray always? Isn't it Paul who says rejoice in the Lord? Again, I say rejoice. How, how many things does Paul tell us about our prayer lives and how we should pray and, and the fact that God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine? Isn't that Paul? That's the same guy. Right. Life is totally, radically, crazily turned around. He's in a current situation that says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? But listen, hear this. God is not looking for a partnership. God does not want a partnership with you and I. He wants ownership. So who owns you? Who owns my life? Who's calling the shots? You want to have that power that we talk about, the Spirit moving through us in amazing ways, responding to what the Spirit wants to do, but we don't want to pay the price. Jesus said, count the cost. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a nice, posh home and all these other things. Why? He was doing what the Father called him to do. Uh, Maybe that's not what God's called each of us to but maybe he has called some of us to that. Does he have ownership of your life? Because he has ownership here. And he is praying. So God reaches out to Ananias, who's not in the room. And he said, Ananias, I want you to go see Saul. Now I want you to hear what he said. He tells him, Saul first is at the house of Judas uh, on the street called Straight. And he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias, he kind of prays like I do. He tells God what God already knows. So Lord, I just want to pray for so and so, they're sick. And you know, God's in heaven thinking, wow, that's a newsflash. I had no idea they were sick. We do stuff like that. Instead of calling out in the name of God for power, for healing, for, for the move of His Spirit, for Him to be glorified, whatever the things are, we, we kind of give Him a rundown of what's going on in the world. Lord, the world is crazy. Somebody voted for our president again. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, the Lord's in heaven saying, I know, I've, I've been watching. He's aware of what's happening. Look what Ananias says. He says, uh, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard much about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is on authority to the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Lord, I I don't know if you're really sure you know who this guy is, but he's going to get us. And and rather than show up at his house so he can just arrest me when I get there, I'd like him to actually have to find me. But God said, go. That reminds me of that portion of Moses in Stephen's message. I have seen, I have heard, I came down, and I send you. Ananias, go. And then he tells Ananias what's gone on in Paul's life. Listen, he says, go. He is chosen. He's chosen. It means to be called out. 
He called out Saul. Oh, everybody thinks, man, Saul's such a lucky guy. He got called out. God showed up and did all this amazing stuff for him. Here's what I'm saying. God does the same thing in your life. You know that you're called out, that you're chosen. Ephesians 1.4, that's what Ephesians 1.4 tells us. Ephesians 1.4 says that you, he has chosen. You see, God is doing this work. You are also one whom he has chosen. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Wow, exactly what God says about Saul. But he's saying that about you and I, about everyone. You're chosen. What's the next thing he says? He's a chosen what? He's a chosen vessel. Well, don't you see? To be chosen speaks of God's plan. God has a plan for your life. To be a vessel means that God wants to move in your life in power. Oh, that's kind of a stretch. You know, I, I don't know, Jackie. I, I don't know how you get ve- from vessel to power. Oh, come with me. I love little trails like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll take a look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels oh so the same thing we have this treasure in earthen vessels for what that the excellence of what the power of god or that the power may be of god and not of us we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that we can see the power of god working through it people look at saul and they say man i remember who that guy was he was beating people throwing him in prison and now he's on the street corner preaching He's preaching. The people who used to go around with him arresting people are now arresting him. That's the most radical change I've ever seen. What accounts for such a change in someone's life? The power of God. He is a chosen, called out by me, vessel that the power of God can move through his life. What's the third thing he says? A chosen vessel of mine. Ownership. God says he's mine. You know, God says the same thing about you. You have been bought with a price. You are His. You are His portion, His inheritance in all the saints. You are the treasure that Jesus receives. You, you're it. Same thing He says about Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine. For what purpose? For what purpose? To bear my name this is how i want you to see that concept of being of bearing my name luke chapter 14 same exact word is used he said in luke 14 26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father mother wife and children brothers and sisters and his own life also he cannot be my disciple what that's one of those scary verses in the bible basically what the lord says is unless Compared to the, your love for me, compared to every other kind of love you have, looks like hate. Every other love that you have in your life looks like hate compared to your love for me. You're not worthy of being my disciple. Man, that means to be utterly and completely, totally consumed with who Jesus Christ is, who the Lord is. But look, listen to the next phrase he says in Luke 14 and verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross... And come after me. Cannot be my disciple. He will bear my name. It's it's the same exact word. The same connotation. He's going to take the name. What's the name of Jesus? Yehoshua. That God is salvation. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles. He's going to show the Gentiles. The beauty of the grace of God. Bestowed in his life and expressed to them as well. He's going to show kings. And some of the things we've been reading in Acts 22 and Acts 26 is him speaking before kings. He's going to show the children of Israel whom his heart breaks for. But he's going to bear the cross. He's going to bear the name of Christ. In the very next verse, look what it says. For I will show him how many things he will suffer for what? For my name's sake. God's not punishing him. God is simply telling him the same thing he told everyone else. The world hates me. It will hate you too. The world persecuted me. It will persecute you too. 
So, Saul, when you commit your life to me, you're committing your life with an opportunity to bear the cross of Christ wherever you go, to see God move in power in incredible ways, to know that you are chosen by me, that you are my special inheritance and portion. But you also need to know that they're going to come against you. And you are going to suffer. I love what Paul says later in chapter 20. When none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my race with joy. He says, I, I don't even consider the present suffering worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed when we see Jesus face to face. Well, Saul says, that's a small price. Compared to the gift that God has given him to the way that God has moved in his life. So the scripture tells us what happens. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laid hands on him. He puts his hands on Saul and he prays for him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. He, he calls him a brother. He puts hands on him. He gives him, he, 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 he pours out to him compassion and encouragement. He pours out compassion and encouragement. He calls him brother. He says, you're part of the family. And then he confirms his experience. Man, you did see God. That was God speaking to you. That was the light of God shining into your life. The move of God's Spirit wooing you to Himself. Man, you did see those things. It did happen. And He says, He has sent me to you that you might receive your sight. And what else? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul later on in Ephesians chapter 5 will write, Be ye being filled, constantly overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Seeing the power of God being expressed through your life by the Holy Spirit. You know how you feel yourself? you got to first empty yourself. You ever try to fill a full cup? Just makes a mess, don't it? Every once in a while, I think we need to learn a, a simple concept that I have seen in a, in a book I've been going through lately, and that is the idea of making space for God to move. Is there space in your life for God to move? Is there space in your life for God to speak to you? Can you make an emptiness? Can you make a time? Can you, can you empty the cup so the Lord can fill you up to come before Him and allow Him to do that? You see, God's not... A forcer, he's a filler. And he will fill you. You make space. And he will fill you. So, he says he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight and he arose and was baptized. And I think that baptism speaks of both. In the connotation that we see in the verse prior, he's praying that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he gets baptized in water. He has a new beginning, a new spirit, a new outpouring in his life. And it all stems from a conversion that was brought on by brokenness. You know, Jesus said, whoever falls upon that stone, the cornerstone that was rejected, whoever falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. But upon whomever that stone falls, he will be crushed to powder. Interesting concept. Let me tell you a little bit about what it means. God only uses broken things. Jesus, before he fed the 5,000, he took a piece of bread, he lifted it over his head, he blessed it and did what? Broke it. And then he could feed 5,000 people. Mary, when she came to Jesus to anoint him with that costly fragrance, that, that, that perfume of spikenard in an alabaster box, what did she have to do? Break it and pour it out on him. And Jesus said, this is my body. What? Broken for you. God uses broken things. When we try to go through life without breaking. We're, we're going to miss the power of God moving in our life. We've got to come like just, just like Saul, 
falling on his knees before that light is dawned in his heart and the voice of God is speaking into your life, shouting in your ears. And he says, how long? How long will you run in the other direction? How long will you not surrender? How long will you continue to try to have all the solutions for your life? When will you stop? Tears running down the face of the Lord as He pleads for your soul. Please. I know you think you see. But you don't. I know you think you pray, but you're not. We got to come to the rock and be broken. And when we're broken, let him put us together. When he puts the pieces together, he puts them together with purpose. Not one of us here is without purpose. Young, old, not one of us here is without purpose. God wants to move on our behalf. He wants to do incredible things. He wants to pour out His Spirit just as He did on... you think of a person more influential in ministry than Paul? Look at the things he's going to do. I mean, beside writing 13 books, some say 14 in the New Testament... Beside starting churches everywhere, beside four missionary journeys and and countless souls saved. Because he was willing to be broken. Because he was willing to say, when the Lord spoke to him, I am done resisting. And it's time for me to respond. And after we respond, he'll teach us to rely. You can't rely. You can't change the steps. We have got to respond to what he's doing. And then he received food and he was strengthened. Now, I've been praying nonstop for, I don't know how long time, that God would do a revival, that he would move in our lives, that he would radically change you and I and it's got to start with me as an individual so we're going to have a moment and we're just going to enter into a time of worship and as we enter into that time of worship we're going to we're going to uh, I'm going to share a song with you it's called Awakening and um, I just want you to make it your prayer and if God so moves if if the Lord lays on your heart that there's something that you need to do If he says, you need to come up front and pray, I want to invite you to come up and pray. If he says, you need to kneel where you're at, then kneel where you're at. If God tells you to do something, as we call upon his name and we pray for that awakening, as the Lord moves, as God guides, I want to invite you to do it. We'll have people around the room, people who are happy to pray with you. People, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that will introduce you to them and you can pray the sinner's prayer with them and enter into a, a life where your where your world is upside down. If you've been walking around with a lack of power in your life and you need that awakening in your life, then pray for it. Ask Him. Seek Him. Make an empty spot in your life to fill with God. And you'll discover what you really want to do is empty your life wholly so you can have more of Him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you right now, Lord Jesus, and we pray, God, that, Father, you would do an amazing thing in our life. God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit. God, I pray that you would change us, Lord. Give us passion, break our hearts. God, that our hearts would break for what breaks your heart, that we would hate what you hate, that we would come against, stop trying to make peace with the enemy and just make a choice.
to be who you're calling us to be, God, I pray that you would move in amazing ways as we call upon your name and ask, Lord, that you would wake us up out of the dark, that you would give us light to see.